standard police equipment does not include crystal balls. That's a quote from the decision we're going to explore in this edition of Broadcast Blue. Bringing you the latest case law updates on the legal aspects of law enforcement. This is Broadcast Blue. Hello and welcome to this episode of Broadcast Blue, brought to you by Leah One. I'm your host, Bruce Allen Barnard, and in this episode, we're going to take a look at a recent decision from the First Circuit that is a case of first impression for that circuit. Have you heard of the community caretaking exception? Do you know what it is? Do you know whether or not it extends to the search of a dwelling? Those are the questions that we'll be addressing in this episode. If you've listened to any of the previous episodes here on Broadcast Blue, you know that I like to use these as refreshers as well as updates. So let's take just a few minutes to talk about the community caretaking doctrine generally. Back in 1973, in the case Katie versus Dombrowski, the United States Supreme Court determined that police officers performing what they described in the case as community caretaking functions were not a violation of the Fourth Amendment if they engaged in a non-investigatory search of an automobile. This kind of case is what I often refer to as a blue key case. It's a Supreme Court decision that has a significant impact on the Fourth Amendment. The facts in the case are fascinating, and if you've never read the case, I highly recommend it to you. A police officer, Chicago police officer named Chester Dombrowski, was driving in Kewaskam, Wisconsin, in a rented car. You say that three times fast. And I hope, hopefully, if the folks up there in Wisconsin, I pronounced it right, that Kawaskum. Interesting, uh, some interesting city names up there in Wisconsin. After having too much to drink, he wrecked the automobile. He was arrested for drunk driving, and he informed the arresting officers that he was a Chicago police officer. The police uh, had the car towed, and it went to a garage that was seven miles from the police station so it wasn't close and it was left outside unguarded and they knew that um, police officers off-duty police officers often carried firearms in their trunk and since the automobile was in this place unguarded they decided to go look for and retrieve a firearm if they could find one in the trunk so it wouldn't be stolen and potentially used in a crime it wasn't a part of a criminal investigation and the officers had no reason to believe that the presence of the firearm that would be a, a crime. They just expected one to be there. Just the opposite. They expected it to be there as a result of him being an officer and carrying it lawfully in the trunk. But when they went into the trunk to look for and retrieve the service weapon, they found these bloodied items. And so now they're thinking, hmm, and the presence of the bloodied items led to a warrant, which eventually led to more evidence in a dead body. And uh, Dombrowski was charged with murder, and he sought to have the evidence from the trunk excluded as a result of the Fourth Amendment violation, and then the remaining evidence excluded under the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine that we've talked about before. So the court held that the search was not unreasonable since the police had exercised a form of custody of, of the car, which constituted a hazard on the highway. And since Dombrowski was in no condition to pick the car up, in fact, the court said that his condition was intoxicated and later comatose, um, 
the, the revolver, the search for the revolver, was a standard police procedure to protect the public from the weapon's possibility of falling into improper hands. And in reaching this decision, the Supreme Court created this judicially recognized exception, this JRE, that has come to be known as the community caretaking exception. Now, on its facts, the community caretaking exception only applies to warrantless searches of automobiles if they're conducted under a community caretaking function. The Supreme Court has never extended the community caretaking exception to the warrantless entry of dwellings. But a number of circuits, of U.S. circuits have, um, and they've applied this JRE to dwellings. And in the case we're going to look at today, the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit joins that list. The name of this case, what attorneys would refer to as the style of the case, is Coniglia versus Strom. And this decision from the First Circuit is dated 13th of March, 2020. And the opinion was written by one of my favorite judges to read opinions from, Judge Bruce Selya. I particularly enjoy reading the decisions written by Judge Selya because they're witty and increase my vocabulary. You need a dictionary handy when you start to read Judge Selye's decisions, because there's always two or three words that you'll have to look up, and there's certainly a, a few of those in this decision. So let's get to the facts of this very important decision, which is a case of first impression for the First Circuit. Back in 2015, Edward Coniglia got into a verbal argument with his wife, Kim. At some point during the argument, he went into the bedroom, he comes out with a handgun, and he threw it on the dining room table and told his wife, shoot me now and get it over with. And at this point, Edward decided to go for a ride to cool down. While he was gone, Kim put the gun back where it was normally kept in the bedroom, but she hid the magazine with the, the rounds in it. At that point, she decided she'd stay in a hotel um, overnight if he didn't calm down, hadn't calmed down some when he got back. So he gets back. When he returns, they get into an argument again. And at this point, Kim left the home to spend the night in the nearby hotel. When she spoke to her husband that evening on the telephone, he sounded really upset and what she described as a little angry. The next morning, she tried to call him, but there was no answer on the house phone, and she feared that he might have committed suicide or hurt himself and was unable to summon assistance. So she called the Cranston, Rhode Island Police Department and asked that an officer accompany her to the residence. And she told the police department that her husband was depressed and she was worried for him and she was concerned about what she would find when she got home. In other words, what his condition would be when she got there. Officers from the police department, they first called Edward and, they, and he answered the phone for them and he spoke to him and he said he was willing to talk to them in person. And then other officers met with uh, Kim Caligna at their home. Four officers went to the residence and spoke with Edward on the back porch while Kim waited in her car. Now, Edward corroborated everything that Kim had said and stated that he brought out the firearm and asked his wife to shoot him because he was sick of the arguments and couldn't take it anymore. So here it is the morning after the event, and he's explaining, you know, what why it is and, and what he's saying corroborates, backs up what Kim had told him. So there's no dispute of the fundamental facts here um, between the wife and the husband. When the officers asked him about his mental health, he told them it was none of their business, but he denied that he was suicidal. Sergeant Barth was the sergeant on the scene, and he determined that Edward was imminently dangerous to himself and to others, and he shared this with Edward, and Edward agreed to be transported by ambulance to a nearby hospital 
for psychiatric evaluation. And now Edward claimed the only reason he agreed to go was because the officers told him that his firearms would not be confiscated if he agreed to go. And uh, he says that's their only reason he went. That was a disputed fact. None of the four officers reported that. So uh, that that's, it was a disputed fact in the scenario. But a, a part of it, the court will discuss a little bit later. At some point that morning, the officers were informed that there was a second handgun on the premises. Now, Edward had been taken to the ambulance by hospital. Um, The officers had remained behind. Sergeant Barth decided to seize these two firearms, the one that he had taken out and put on the table, and the other one that he had been informed of was in the house. And so accompanied by Kim, several officers went into the house and the garage and seized the two firearms as well as magazines and ammunition. Edward was evaluated at the hospital, but not admitted as an inpatient. The firearms were eventually returned to Edward, but before they were returned, he filed a civil suit in federal court under Title 42, Section 1983, claiming that he was unlawfully seized when he was transported to the hospital for evaluation, and also the officers unlawfully entered his home and seized his firearms in violation of the Fourth and the Second Amendments. Independent to the federal claims, he also sued on state law grounds under Rhode Island law. The officers sought summary judgment on the suit, arguing that the community caretaking exception applied to all three actions and Edwards' constitutional rights were not violated. The district court agreed and granted summary judgment, and this appeal followed. So let me start with the obvious, what might be obvious for some of you, but maybe not others, before we get to the analysis. It's important to point out that this case is a civil suit and not a criminal prosecution. And the, the reason this is important is because of the, the methods, the procedural rules that dictate how the court rules on motions, such as a motion for summary judgment. In prosecutions, we often see criminal defendants file motions to suppress evidence under the exclusionary rule based on the fact that an uh, argument that an unlawful search or seizure occurred as a result of police misconduct. Now, this is an evidentiary issue in the court, um, and they have to determine whether there's been a Fourth Amendment violation. So they answer questions about the Fourth Amendment in those criminal cases. And indeed, most of our cases, I think, on Broadcast Blue are probably cases that come about as these motions to suppress. But civil suits work a little bit differently. The person who believes his or her rights were violated files this lawsuit in federal court against the law enforcement officer, the state law enforcement officer, if it's a 1983 action. Section 1983 of Title 42 only applies to, to state action. And the, in the federal but they, they file it in federal court and the, against the LEOs for violating Fourth Amendment rights, and among others. But in the, in the civil cases, the defendants are the law enforcement officers, and they often seek to have the court grant them a favorable decision without going to trial. And the way that they do that is to file what's called a motion for summary judgment. You're asking for a judge to summarily issue a judgment in your favor. Um, And this is done uh, when there's no uh, dispute of facts, or if there is a dispute of facts, they have to take the facts in a light most favorable to the non-moving party, which um, is, is typically... Uh, the plaintiff is the, you, typically the non-moving party because the, the attorneys are the defendants in these cases. So if there is a significant dispute of facts, the court may not be able to rule on the motion for summary judgment at all. And the jury will have to determine what the facts are. 
But when the facts are undisputed or when they're taken in the light most favorable to the non-moving party and the court can still rule as a matter of law that the case should be resolved in the favor of the law enforcement officers, then they'll grant the motion for summary judgment and the case never goes to trial. So in this case, the officers are seeking summary judgment. And summary judgment can happen in one of two ways in these types of cases. First, the court can rule that there was no constitutional violation and therefore the defendant should prevail as a matter of law. But alternatively, the court can also rule that even if a constitutional right was violated, that that particular right was not clearly established at the time and therefore they grant the officers what's called qualified immunity. We're going to see both of these in action in this case, so it was worth a few minutes for me to clarify that point. The First Circuit started by laying the legal framework for their decision. In their motion for summary judgment, the defendant sought summary judgment solely on the application of the community caretaking exception. They didn't raise exigent circumstances or specifically the emergency aid exception as the basis for their warrantless searches and seizures. So the First Circuit has to decide as an initial matter whether to extend the community caretaking exception to these types of situations, namely the seizure of a person and the entry into the home and seizure of the firearms. As I stated earlier, this is a case of first impression for the First Circuit. That's a lawyer's way of saying that the issue, this specific issue, has never been decided in this particular court. So in the first part of the decision, they determine whether they're willing to extend the community caretaking exception beyond automobile cases and specifically into dwellings and against people. The court looked to other circuits and they noted that the other federal circuits were split on this issue. Now, the Third Circuit and the Seventh Circuit have held that the community caretaking exception cannot justify a warrantless entry into the home. So if you're in the Third Circuit or the Seventh Circuit, uh, that's your rule of law, that the community caretaking exception has not been extended to the warrantless entries into dwellings. But uh, on the other side of that, you've got the Fifth Circuit, the Sixth, the Eighth, and the Ninth. Um, you've got four other circuits that have applied this community caretaking exception or this doctrine to warrantless entries onto private premises, including homes in particular. What about what about the community caretaking exception as applied to people, searching people or seizing people? And the court went on to note that when it came to seizing people and property, the First Circuit and the Third Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit, and the Tenth Circuit had allowed for the seizure of individuals or property under the exception. They're, they're kind of taking an inventory. Uh, how many of the, the, the situations we have here, how many of the circuits have applied the community caretaking doctrine and which ones haven't? Well, they'd already applied it to the seizure of a person. So what we were kind of left with was the seizure of the dwelling uh, to kind of determine. So the court stated, and this is a quote, Understanding the core purpose of the doctrine leads inexorably to the conclusion that it should not be limited to the motor vehicle context. And, and therefore, the, the court opened the door before the argument that the community caretaking exception should be applied in this case. They held that any assessment of the reasonableness 
of the caretaking functions was going to require a balancing test. And we've heard that a lot in these cases, the balancing. And that's what Fourth Amendment decisions and determinations of reasonableness are always always about, aren't they? We look at the totality of the circumstances and we balance the the seriousness or the significance of the government interest versus the the degree of intrusion in, in this balance. And that's exactly what they're they're going to do in this case. And they say the balance requires the construction of, of a balance between the need for the caretaking activity, there's the government side, and on the other side, the effective individual's interest in freedom from government intrusion. So say so they do this balance and when they do this, this balance, they come up with what they refer to as guardrails for the application of the doctrine, an interesting uh, term that they're going to, we got these guardrails, we're going to keep you on this path, we're going to keep you between the guardrails, we're not going to let you wander off the guardrails, and so here, here are what your guardrails are. First, as a starting point, the police officers must have a solid, non-investigatory reason for engaging in the community caretaking activity. In other words, they can't use the community caretaking doctrine as a subterfuge um, for a criminal investigation and what uh, many of my former students often refer to as a workaround. Um, Second, the reason for conducting this caretaking activity has to be based on specific articulable facts to justify the officer's decision to act in this caretaking capacity on objective grounds. And so that we have this objectivity based on stated articulable facts. Boy, that, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And third, the community caretaking actions have to be based on either state law or sound police procedure. And the court noted while the officers were not required to select the least intrusive means of fulfilling this community caretaking responsibilities, the task had to be narrowly circumscribed in scope and duration to match what is reasonably required to perform the community, community caretaking functions. We're hearing all these terms that we hear in Fourth Amendment decisions, and, and so um, uh, it's, it's, all, it's coming out, and we're, and we're hearing it now in this community caretaking function. So the framework has been set. The framework set by the court, they've decided at this point to extend the community caretaking exception to this type of Fourth Amendment intrusion, and they've laid out the guardrails or the requirements for the application of the exception to the situations presented in, in the case here. So now we look at how they apply this these guardrails and this analysis, uh, how they apply this rule to the, the issues in the case. There were a number of issues presented to the court in the appeal. The first three issues dealt with specifically the Fourth Amendment, and I want to focus on those Fourth Amendment issues in this discussion. First, the plaintiff asserted that he was unlawfully seized in violation of the Fourth Amendment when he was taken to the hospital. Second, the plaintiff asserts that his Fourth Amendment rights were violated when they entered his home to seize the firearms after he had been transported to the hospital. And last, uh, the, the plaintiff asserts that both his Fourth and Second Amendment rights were violated when the officers actually seized the firearms. So let's see what the court did, how they analyzed each of these issues under the framework that they laid out. Regarding the seizure of Mr. Coniglia when he was transported to the hospital for psychiatric evaluation, the court held that no rational fact finder could deem that unreasonable. Uh, the officer's conclusions were reasonable. Um, the, the plaintiff presented an imminent risk of harming 
himself or others. And in support of this conclusion, the court noted they, these facts. Now, these remember they said the facts had to be articulated. And they said they noted that he had gone to, into the bedroom, came back into the dining room with the pistol, threw it on the table, and then told his wife to shoot him now and get it over with. And they also knew that his behavior had so upset his wife, who clearly knows him well, it, it upset her so much that she spent the night at a hotel and then the following day um, requested a wellness check because he hadn't answered the phone and she feared he might have committed suicide. And they also uh, concluded that the officers acted in conformity with a sound police procedure. So now we're at that other guardrail, right? Um, we've got the articulable facts, um, and now we've got this, this acting in conformity with either state law or police procedure. And they said that they, he acted uh, in conformity with sound police procedure by seizing the plaintiff and sending him to the hospital for psychiatric evaluation. Now, Mr. Coniglia argued that these were just dramatic gestures, but the court countered with, with the quote, standard police equipment does not include crystal balls. And the court held that the officer's seizure of Mr. Coniglia was reasonable, was a reasonable exercise of their community caretaking responsibilities as set out in the, the framework that they provided and did not violate the Fourth Amendment. Now, the issues of the warrantless entry are remaining in the house um, after he was transported and the warrantless seizure of the firearms are treated simultaneously by the court because they're directly related and, and intertwined in this community caretaking function uh, exception in the analysis. The court concluded, looking at the facts, that the officers could reasonably have believed, remember this is an objective test based on these articulable facts, the court concluded the officers could reasonably have believed, based on the facts known to them at the time, that leaving the guns in the home where they were um, and, and accessible to him posed a serious threat of imminent harm. And in support of this conclusion, they noted, uh, the facts they noted, right, that, that he first uh, he had admitted to throwing a firearm onto the table, making a statement that they could have reasonably construed as indicating a threat of self-harm. He was going to hurt himself or wanted someone else to hurt him, uh, that he was suicidal. And furthermore, uh, his wife was so concerned that she felt it was necessary to hide the magazine containing the bullets for that gun and then leave uh, the dwelling to stay overnight in the hotel. And furthermore, with their encounter with him the following morning, he, he indicated that he was sick of the arguments with his wife and was very upset that she had involved the police. And so he, still, he is still upset the morning after. Um, especially now that the police are involved, apparently. So at the time the decision was made, the court concluded the officers did not know what the outcome would be at the hospital and how long it would be before he returned. They didn't have that kind of information at the time uh, the decision was made. And the court um, the court held, and this is a quote, such uncertainty, we think, could have led a reasonable officer to continue to regard the danger of leaving the firearms in the plaintiff's home as immediate and accordingly to err on the side of caution. Going to err on the side of caution. The, the court also noted that police officers are not required to choose, again, uh, they're not required to choose the least intrusive means of fulfilling the commu community caretaking functions as long as the means that they actually choose are reasonable. And the court held 
that the officer's actions in going into Mr. Coniglia's home and seizing the firearms were consistent with sound police procedure. So they're going through these guardrails, again, these, this analysis there, articulating the facts and determining um, the, the facts and then looking at whether or not it was consistent with state law or sound police procedure. And um, they held here that it was and that, that no rational fact finder could deem unreasonable either the officer's belief that the plaintiff posed an imminent risk of harm to himself or others, or their belief that reasonable prudence dictated at seizing the handguns and placing them beyond his reach. And therefore, they ruled his action, the actions of the officers fell under the community caretaking exception. So those are the Fourth Amendment decisions in the case that they had to make. They extended the community caretaking doctrine beyond automobiles to include seizures of, of persons, which they'd already done in the First Circuit, um, but more importantly to the entry, the warrantless entry into a dwelling under this specific type of judicially recognized uh, exception. And they joined the Fifth, the Sixth, the Eighth, and the Ninth Circuits um, in, in so holding. Now we've got, a, we've got a circuit split, so this might see what happens. I see uh, this might end up going to the Supreme Court, and we might end up with uh, the Supreme Court having to... Uh, to determine uh, what the actual rule is or whether or not it's going to be applied and extended beyond uh, that in the KD versus Dombrowski in, in automobiles. We'll have to see what happens, and, um, and we'll uh, keep an eye on that for you, and we'll let you know if anything like that develops. Right now, this is our rule of law, at least in some of these circuits, and we've got five circuits where the community caretaking function can be extended into dwellings, and a number of other circuits where it can be uh, utilized in order to effectuate the seizure of a person. It's one of those things you have to know what circuit you're in. You have to know what the and what your what your state law is as well. Um, and before I move on, um, before I wrap up, let me give you a quick little rundown on what happened with the other claims. Remember, we had a Second Amendment claim, and just out of curiosity, you might be saying to yourself, "Self, what happened about that Second Amendment claim where they claimed he violated um, his Second Amendment?" gun rights in uh, when they went in and seized the firearm well the court you know in the in the three in the fourth amendment decisions the court said under the community caretaking doctrine that his rights were not violated and remember i told you up front there are two ways that you can resolve this motion for summary judgment the court can rule that as a matter of law the rights weren't violated you know when looking at the facts either the undisputed facts or facts in light most favorable to the non-moving party they can rule as a matter of law that there was no fourth amendment violation or a constitutional violation and then the and then they grant the motion for summary judgment um, but that's not the only way that's what happened that's what happened in all the Fourth Amendment claims in this case, but that's not what happened in the Second Amendment claim. Remember I told you that the other way that you get this motion for summary judgment granted is with um, qualified immunity, and that's what happened with the Second Amendment. The, without determining whether or not this was actually a Second Amendment right, the court said even if it was, even just for assuming for argument's sake that this constituted a Second Amendment a violation, that it was not clearly established at the time the officers took the action and therefore granted qualified immunity. Now, we've got other, we've got other uh, presentations, got other information on 
qualified immunity, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about that. The Pearson v. Callahan is your blue key case for that. I want to give you the case sites. Unlike unlike a lot of folks that get on the YouTube and the internet and start talking about search and seizure law without ever referencing a single case. Um, but uh, uh, Pearson v. Callahan is the case for that if you want to look at it. But they don't basically they don't have to decide the first prong. They can skip straight to the second prong and say even if it was. The, the right was violated. It wasn't clearly established. And that's what they did. They granted qualified immunity for the Second Amendment claim. Now, just really quickly, I want to throw in a little bit of commentary about the, the state law, because there were state law claims, what were called pendant claims, um, on this federal lawsuit uh, in federal court. They also, the, the plaintiffs also claimed that the Rhode Island constitutional provisions regarding search and seizure were violated um, under uh, under through these actions. So even if it wasn't a violation of the Fourth Amendment, it was a violation of the Rhode Island Constitution. Now, I, I talk about this all the time when I'm out teaching search and seizure law or teaching it online in a hybrid class or even in e-learning content. Uh, when, when I'm addressing state and local law enforcement officers, it's really, really, really important for you to understand that you might have a tier um, that puts more restrictions on you than the Fourth Amendment does. It's always possible that your state constitution can put more restrictions on you than what the Fourth Amendment does. So even if the Supreme Court says it's okay uh, to do something, it might be that the state court, the state Supreme Court, has ruled it under the state constitution that it's not okay. You see a lot of this in the search and seizure cases that come out of Vermont um, and some out of Washington state where the, the state constitutions have provisions that provide more restrictions against law enforcement officers than um, than the the federal law does, and so they made that argument. But here, the the First Circuit noted that the Rhode Island Constitution, when in regards to these matters, is read in congruence with the Fourth Amendment, and so they they for most purposes the Rhode Island search and seizure constitutional provisions are read in congruence with the Fourth Amendment. In a lot of states, it's that way. In some states, they they flat out say it. I mean, the, in the, the Florida Constitution, it basically pretty much says that search and seizure law um, under the Florida Constitution is whatever the United States Supreme Court says it is. Now, that, that puts a little bit of a restriction on the Florida legislature and the Florida courts if the Supreme Court has ruled on something. But as we've seen in a lot of these cases, and as we've seen in this case today, the Supreme Court has not ruled on this specific issue. And so at that point, the state courts um, um, are uh, able to interpret their their provisions, even, even if they say they're in congruence with the Fourth Amendment, they're able to construe them uh, pretty much any way they want to. They're not, con- they're not constricted. And they're also not constricted by the circuit court um, decisions. But when the circuit court's making the decision applying the law, then, then they're going to kind of be stuck with it. So there you go. That, just a quick little word about state law. It's very important in search and seizure law, and I, I, I can't overemphasize, that you need ab- above and beyond the Fourth Amendment restrictions. You need to know what your state law restrictions are. The state law can always be more restrictive on you as a LEO than the, the Fourth Amendment, but it can never be less because of the supremacy clause in the Constitution, and we see that we uh, see that quite a bit in a, in a lot of specific uh, instances. And you need you need to be aware of them. So it was worth uh, pointing that out real quickly.
Well, that's it for this presentation on Broadcast Blue, this case and this particular case, as all others in these presentations are brought to you by LEA One. And LEA One provides professional search and seizure training in every modality, the only company that can say that. All of our instructors are FLETC certified legal instructors. And that, that takes a lot of training. It takes years of experience and training and evaluation to receive that designation. That's no small thing. There's a, a number of folks out there that are putting the title senior legal instructor behind their name, and it's, it's, self, it's self-generated. They declared themselves, self-designated themselves senior legal instructors, which is a little bit of a slap in the face of those of us who spent years and years of, of training and, and evaluation in order to receive a, a designation like that. But I want to assure you that all of the LEA One instructors um, have that certification. You can go on the website and uh, check out www.lea1. All of our curricula is professionally designed using sound instructional design principles by people who are trained to know instructional design. And all of our e-learning is professionally developed by people who uh, develop e-learning content. It's the all of our learning, whether it's live online or in any modality is delivered through our powerful Learn Blue learning management system. Let me tell you just briefly what we have going on. I'd love for you to join us. We have free webinars, um, running hundreds of free webinars. They're always free. Uh, some folks have just started to do free webinars and good for them. They're, they're following our lead. All of our webinars are always free. It is information sharing. Um, and that is uh, you know, what we make the distinction between information sharing and training. And we provide these webinars to provide information. They're always free. And we give a certificate of, of attendance um, that's generated by the system automatically for those who register and attend. Assist, the system knows uh, we use the powerful GoToWebinar platform for all of our um, webinars. We, uh, Leah One has launched the first hybrid online courses for law enforcement officers. We've got the very popular, we took the popular eight-hour legal aspects of traffic stops course that we were teaching all across the country face-to-face and converted it into a hybrid online course. What does that mean, hybrid online? It means it combines two modalities of online learning. We combined five hours of e-learning content, highly interactive and engaging uh, on-demand e-learning content, followed by a two-hour live virtual classroom session where you get to ask questions. You know, a lot of complaints that people have about these some e-learning courses, they never get to ask questions. What if I have a question about this? I mean, this stuff isn't easy. This stuff's tricky. I don't understand what what the point, how they got from point A to point B in this particular lesson. Um, we There's a two-hour in these hybrid online classes. We have a two-hour virtual class with an instructor where we wrap all this stuff together, answer questions, and and present some more information and some some more cases. And so that's a these hybrid online courses are uh, turning out to be very popular. Going to be the wave of the future. Just uh, it really is. Uh, it's economical and it, it and it and it's very. Uh, it makes things much easier. And we also do live online courses where we'll do either a four or an eight hour course online live in the virtual or virtual classroom space. Leo One uses Adobe Connect virtual classroom for the virtual classroom space, and we have these cl- classes that uh, last four to eight hours. 
And there is also on-demand e-learning in a bunch of different topics on the, the Learn Blue Serve, mostly search and seizure, but other things as well. The, the legal aspects of law enforcement. Nobody does it better than providing you training in all the modalities. We look forward to when we can do live classes face-to-face again uh, across the country. We certainly miss getting out and seeing folks. But, you know, we've got the training gap as a result of this pandemic and we've got this training gap, and we're having to fill this gap through these innovative methods, and we're leading the way. Leah One is leading the way. Go to Leah One. Go to the website. Our name is our website address, www.lea.one, leah.one, and check it out. And while you're there, sign up for the Blue Flash Legal Update newsletter and, and see what we have going on. Thanks again for joining me on this episode. Thank you so much for what you do. As always, if there's anything we can help you to do with your training needs, please let us know. Stay safe, and we hope to see you again real soon. This presentation is provided for purely academic purposes. I'm fond of saying I'm a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. And what I mean by that is that I do not provide formal legal advice through these presentations. No part of this presentation is offered, nor should it be construed as legal advice. If you need formal legal advice regarding any part of this presentation or have legal questions, you should consult with your attorney.